0: chapter 13 this morning. Sunday morning we're studying the book of 1 Corinthians in a series entitled Christian Living in a Pagan World. If you're with us today and you don't have a Bible, just wave to one of the men that are coming up the aisle right now and they'll give you a Bible so you can hear the Word and read it as well. Please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. "...bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part will be done away." When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am known. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for this amazing passage in your amazing word. And we pray that by your Holy Spirit that you would speak to us every thought and intent of yours behind it. Impart, Lord, every reason that it's in your book into our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength. Continue to fashion us and conform us into the image of Christ as we continue our worship of you now and the study of your word. Thank you for the ministry of your Holy Spirit. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. When we come to... 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we come to one of the most famous passages in all of the Bible. Not only is it well known by most Christians, but even those who are not yet Christians are very often familiar with it where maybe a passage like this they've been exposed to sometime in their childhood or in their adult life, along with maybe several other passages within the Bible. It seems that just about everybody knows about this great chapter on love. Personally, I think that this passage of Scripture is perhaps the best known and the least understood passage in the whole Bible. It isn't just a great literature. Oftentimes people read this chapter and they think of it as just supremely an evidence of great literature. And it is great literature, but it's much more than that. Many people believe that in reading First Corinthians chapter 13 and God recording it in his book, that it's God's description of what is good and best in mankind. That this is what we can aspire to. This is our human potential. But that's to miss the meaning of the passage entirely. And then there are others who look at this chapter and they conclude that it's a description of the life that God calls us to live as human beings, as His creation and that we are to uh, strive to live this kind of life, and we have the potential of living this kind of life in our own strength. But again, the chapter is nothing of the sort. There's another area of confusion concerning this chapter that's common even among Christians. And very often, when you discuss uh, spiritual gifts with some Christians, they will encapsulate their confusion in this way. They'll make the statement, I don't need spiritual gifts. I have the gift of love. And so when you talk to them about the Holy Spirit, you talk about them to them about God's gifting in their life, spiritual gifts in their life, the call of God upon their life. They dismiss it with a wave as if that all of that is meaningless, as if Paul is wasting his time devoting an entire chapter, chapter 12 and then chapter 14, talking about something that really doesn't matter. And they say, uh, again, in effect, I don't need any of it. I don't need spiritual gifts. I have the gift of love. And there's great confusion in a statement like that. It's like comparing, not just comparing Uh, apples with oranges, but it's like comparing apples with rye bread, because love and spiritual gifts are two entirely different things. And the subject of love found here in chapter 13 is actually introduced to us in the final verse of chapter 12, verse 31. You might see it yourself. Paul said, "...but earnestly desire the best gifts." And yet, I show you a more excellent way. And with that statement, he introduces this chapter on love. In other words, love is not one of the spiritual gifts of the Holy Spirit. It is the way in which the gifts of the Holy Spirit are to be exercised and to be expressed. Well, someone might ask, Well, If love is not a spiritual gift of the Holy Spirit, then what is it? And Paul tells us very plainly in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that love is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And he declares there, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, longsuffering, and so forth as he goes through the list. And he begins that description with love. No individual Christian possesses every gift of the Holy Spirit. Nobody does that. Every Christian has one or more gifts, but no Christian possesses all of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Nor does any single gift of the Holy Spirit is it represented in every single individual Christian. And Paul closes chapter 12 by making this very point. He said, Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, are all workers of miracles? Do all have the gifts of healings? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? And this is a series of rhetorical questions, and the answer to each of them is no. No. Take any of those gifts, and those gifts are not represented in every single Christian. But every Christian should possess and can possess the fruit of the Holy Spirit, love in our lives, and it is this love, the byproduct of a healthy, yielded relationship with the Holy Spirit. Now this morning as we look at this chapter... I want to examine it by looking at Paul's three main points. And point number one is the necessity of love in verses 1 through 3. And then the definition of love in verses 4 through 7. And then the enduring permanence of love in verses 8 through 13. For some of you, that, that doesn't mean anything to you. But for others, that helps gives you a bird eye, bird's eye view of things in terms of understanding where we go next. We begin with the necessity of love. In verses 1 through 3, and in verse 1, we have the Holy Spirit driving home in a powerful way the necessity of a motivation of love in our speech and in our speaking as Christians. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I've become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Now, in the first century, eloquence of speech was very, very admired, and certainly in uh, cultures that were strongly influenced by Grecian culture. Corinth was a city in the nation of Greek, uh, Greece. It was a very, very Greek city, and they loved to listen to powerful, persuasive speakers. And in fact, in those days, these great orators that would speak on these different subjects and speak with great beauty and great eloquence, they were the rock stars of their age, but that was a period where uh, content was meaningful to people, logical progression, persuasiveness in speech people had attention spans that we 've largely lost today but when someone would speak in that setting, people would give them their undivided uh, attention and eagerly do so because this was of great fascination to them. But Paul then declares that without the motivation of love in a speaker, that even the highest and the most beautiful use of language and speech becomes a comparable noise; it becomes like a clanging bell or a crashing cymbal. Now we sit and we listen to this, and uh, words like this, and it hits us one way or another. But what Paul writes in verse one here in this chapter would have hit the Christians in Corinth absolutely like a ton of bricks, because they were exercising all of these various spiritual gifts many of them verbal in nature, word of wisdom, word of knowledge, prophecy, these kind of gifts of the Holy Spirit that required speech, and they were operating in these gifts at Corinth out of a desire to be seen, out of a desire to be thought of as uh, more spiritual as a result of it, out of a motive of self a promotion or a desire to be well thought of by other people. And so they ministered these gifts out of a selfish motivation as opposed to doing it out of a love for God and a love for the people that they were talking to. And God knows that it is love that is the true power of speech, that the motivation of love is the single greatest motivation that a speaker can possess, a love for God and a love for his or her audience. And you think about how wonderful it is when a heart and uh, motivation of love is in a speaker, and that is then combined with the eternal truth of God's Word and the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a tremendous combination, and all of it is marred in an absence of, of love. The simple truth from the Bible spoken out of a motivation of love is far more powerful in its influence than great, great eloquence without it. That's why it's a very good verse to think about as Christians before we're going to address other people. And that might be you have an opportunity where you're going to speak to a group of people, maybe teach or whatever it might be, or to talk to an individual and to ask myself, am I going to say what I'm going to say to these people right now because I am massively frustrated with every single one of them? Or am I going to speak to them out of the fact that I have a love for them and a deep concern for them? Because the motivation will make all of the difference in terms of the power of what we say, how it gets received, and all of those kind of things. And so the prayer is in our lives as God would use us to speak to people in a group or individually, Lord, I don't want to speak a word to this person, to these people, until you give me your Love for them. And uh, without that, my words are just going to be a comparative noise. In verse two, God declares that even the most extraordinary giftings of the Holy Spirit can't make up for a lack of love. And you look at the gifts that he lists there in verse two. If I have the gift of prophecy, in other words, I'm a human instrument through whom God speaks. Uh, if all spiritual mysteries dissolved under my examination as a result of God's divine revelation in my life if i had all knowledge the gift of word of knowledge was operating in my life so constantly so in such an uninterrupted state in my life that there was nothing in life that i saw or experienced that was unknown to me, God speaking to me of of everything that I'm seeing through his word of knowledge, or if I had all faith that I was able to move mountains, able to redecorate the countryside, he said, If even if you have even if one person had all of that gifting operating in their life, and all of the oohs and ahs that would go with that kind of a gifting, he says, without love, I am nothing and the word for nothing is an interesting one because it means nothing but it can just as equally mean nobody so even if i possessed all of the gifts of the holy spirit and i exercised them to an astonishing degree if i did so out of some other motivation than love uh, and and uh, it, then in the eyes of heaven i would be considered a nothing Or nobody. That's how important love is to God. You think about it, you read verses one and two and put yourself in the place of the Corinthian Christian, and they would be saying, Ouch! Because it was speaking right to where they were. All the gifts were in operation. They were serious about their calling and all those kind of things, but a serious lack of love. And Paul was getting their attention. By the Holy Spirit in a really big way to drive home how important love is to God. And Paul wasn't through yet. Notice in verse 3, he communicates the supremacy of love even over Christian service in the eyes of God. That love is so important to God that even the greatest demonstrations of self-sacrifice in our Christian service, if they're done out of some other motive other than love, it profits me nothing. Imagine this. Think about this in your mind. Imagine a person could die penniless on the mission field after a lifetime of sacrificial service, and if the motive for their sacrifice and service was not love, it profits them nothing. I don't know, I don't know what, how those words impact you, but they impact me in a big way. The possibility that I could spend my whole life serving God in a calling, and yet if there's an absence of a motivation of love, there will be no reward for it on the other side of this life? Wow, that's pretty heavy. Is that possible? Apparently it is. Because if the motive behind our service is not love, then it's not going to survive the coming test of the motivation behind our Christian service. The Bible teaches that one day we're going to stand before God as Christians, not to be judged related to our sin, but it's a bema seat. It's a reward seat. We're going to give an account for our service to him one day. And the Bible says that all that we've done is going to be tested by fire to determine what sword it is. In other words, what was the motivation behind what we did and anything that wasn't isn't done out of a motive of love it will simply be burned away for the simple reason that if i do it out of some other motive than love for god and love for other people all the other motives are self-serving and i have then received the reward of that service this side of heaven and there are a lot of motivations for christian service and a lot of selfish motivations for Christian service it can be pride, it can be fanaticism, it can be selfish ambition, it can be a lust for power, uh, a desire to be seen, or a desire to be thought well of or to be praised by other people. And there's no reward for anything that done out of those motivations. And I think it's very heavy to realize that there will be no eternal reward for even the most sacrificial of service if it's done for any other motive than love. Now, it's just like God just dropped an A-bomb into the middle of that church. I'll tell you, right into the middle of my heart, too. Because in these three verses, God could not... They are poetic, they are beautiful, they are magnificent to read, they flow so beautifully. But in those three verses, God cannot express how important love is to him any more powerfully than he has done there. It's just like kind of God is declaring, now... Do I have everybody's attention related to how important love is to me? It's more important than your words to me. It's more important than your speech to me. It's more important than your gifting to me. It's more important than your sacrifice and your service to me. That without it, the greatest speaker, the ultimate in terms of gifting and anointing, the ultimate in terms of self-sacrifice and sacrificial service is in the words of the passage, noise, nothing, nothing. Now having said that, and having gotten our attention through those verses, Paul then goes on to speak to us of the character of love, the definition of love in verses 4 through 7. And here we have the single greatest description of love in all of the Bible. And I'll tell you, I am really Really thankful for it. Because if you come up to me and you say to me, Damien, you need to be a loving person. Uh, Damien, you need to operate out of love. Uh, Damien, you need to be more loving uh, toward this person. And you lay all of that out to me and call on me now, to be loving because it's a very, very important. And you lay that, lay that out to me. And what happens to me is within five seconds, my whole my mind locks up. It freezes on me. Because unless I know what love looks like, I don't know what I'm aiming at. So you have... Uh, 1970 a movie came out by the name of love story i'm not recommending it i don't know that i ever saw it but i do remember the one line from the movie was became a dominant pop culture deal back then and the thing that ali mcgraw spoke was love means never having to say you're sorry Well, isn't that convenient? On the basis of that, most of the world are deeply loving people (laughs) because they never say they're sorry. The Beatles told us, all we need is love. All you need is love. But then they didn't provide a definition for it, and they were on a search just like everyone else. And so if you tell me I need to be loving, but you don't tell me what that looks like, then I don't know what I'm aiming at. And my mind is going to lock up because the subject of love is so immense that our minds want to go in a thousand different directions all at once. And so then we become frustrated. And God knows that. And so he calls on us and speaks to us of the importance of love but then tells us what it looks like. And there's no one more authoritative in all of the universe to speak about what love really, really looks like and the complications and demands of life on fallen earth than God himself. And here's what he uh, tells us and speaks to us. In terms of love. We don't have to come up with our own definition. We don't have to buy into the definitions of others. We got the definition that beats all definitions from God. He says in verse 4 that love suffers long. In other words, love is patient with people, even when it's being wronged and even when it's being provoked. So love is long-tempered. Rather than short tempered it doesn 't give up on people even when giving up on people is the easier thing to do, but it wouldn 't be the right thing to do and The fact of the matter is we 're all going to need to be long suffering uh, in our relationships with one another because i don 't care how holy a person becomes or how sanctified they become this side of heaven they 're still going to be less than perfect and They will require our long-suffering in a relationship with them, and we will require that of them in their relationship with us. Love is also kind, verse 4. So after it has suffered long and it finally gets an opportunity to express itself, it expresses itself in kindness. And that is a mark of love. Some people are long-suffering for the day. That their righteousness is shown to be true and the other person finally admits they're wrong and then they lay into them, go up one side of them and down the other. No kindness at all. But love suffers long and it responds in kindness. Love doesn't envy, verse 4. It's content. It's content with what God has given me. It's content with God's call on my life. It's content with the spiritual gifts that he has given to me or the sphere of influence for the kingdom of God that God has given to me. So it isn't threatened and it isn't displeased by the success of other people. It rejoices when it sees another Christian have the same gifting as we have And their their gifting is a greater one. Their opportunities are greater. Their accomplishments are greater. Their influence is greater by the Spirit of God. And we don't envy it because the kingdom of God is being advanced. He says in verse 4, love does not parade itself. In other words, it doesn't desire to draw attention to itself. It isn't anxious to be the center of attention. It isn't, verse 4, love is not puffed up. It's not puffed up with pride. It's humble. It it doesn't look down on other people. Love, verse 5, doesn't behave rudely. It's polite. It's courteous to people. It doesn't treat people in a rude way. Look at how this is disappearing within our culture. Politeness and being courteous. Not only is it disappearing, but it's being replaced by brutality as the way that people are interacting with one another. Love doesn't even behave rudely. Love does not seek its own, verse 5. So it's not selfish. It's not self-centered. It's other-centered. It's more interested in helping other people, assisting other people, blessing other people. It's not provoked, verse 5. So it isn't overly touchy. It's not super... Uh, sensitive. You don't have to walk on eggshells around a person that is uh, operating in this love. This kind of person isn't easily offended or frustrated. It thinks no evil, verse 5. In other words, this love is innocent. It doesn't think the worst about people. It's ready to think the best uh, about people. And it gives people the benefit of the doubt Related to life. Somebody comes and says, did you see what they did right there? That has to mean this. And you look at it and at one time in your life you would have gone right down the track with them, judged that person, done that. But God's done such a work of love in your life that you look at that and you think to yourself, it doesn't mean that at all. It could just as easily be explained in this way, in a virtuous way. And that's the way that love looks at things. The phrase, it thinks no evil it also carries the meaning that love doesn't keep a record of wrong it, it, that is committed against it. So it doesn't hold a grudge and it doesn't, uh, uh, you know, nurse a grudge. In verse 6, it does not rejoice in iniquity. You remember in Church at Quant, they have all kinds of problems in that church. They even had a guy that was sleeping with his mother-in-law, sexually involved, and they're all patting each other on the back. See how liberal we are and how open we are. Everybody from Corinth is going to come to our church because we don't condemn anything here, you know, and they've got this whole attitude related to things, and they're rejoicing in iniquity, and Paul turns around and he rebukes him for it because love will do that. Uh, love has a backbone. God's love does. And it has convictions. It doesn't ignore sin, uh, much less rejoice in it. It does the right thing, just as Paul did in correcting uh, those at at Corinth. There's a strong... And I think this is where there's such a strong departure in terms of God's love, which is true love, as opposed to how love is... uh, We're indoctrinated on how to define love within the culture. The culture how it sees love today, the culture that we live in, by and large, it defines love as always just accepting everything and never ever um, making a stand against anything, even sin. Nothing, can, you can't speak out against anything. That love is always expressed in being affirming or at least silent in the face of Uh, you know sinful things and when a person's making a decision that's going to result in them driving off of the proverbial cliff or society is going to drive off the proverbial cliff that if anybody opens up their mouth to protest or to warn that they're being unloving that's it's about as stupid as you can possibly be your excuse that stupid is in the bible by the way in the book of proverbs there are so many people that are driving off cliffs under the encouragement of a so-called love and the affirmation of so-called love and they are destroying their lives and yet we pat ourselves on the back because we think it's just this love is just this emotional thing love does what is best for the other person and sometimes that's a hard thing to do And it's so hard to speak up and say something that it takes great love to do it. I'm totally into self-preservation. I don't know about you. I'm so ashamed to have admitted it. But my first inclination is self-preservation. I'm in a conversation with somebody and somebody says something that's just like goofy or crazy or they're going to do something that's going to be destructive and all. I want to sit there and say, I didn't hear that. I didn't hear that. I didn't hear that. I'm having a perfectly fine day. I don't need to correct somebody or try and get them to see it another way or warn them or anything like that. Ignorance is bliss and um, I'm just going to not say anything because who needs the aggravation? And yet when you really love the person, you can't walk away from them without them saying what needs to be said to them about that, the situation that could destroy them and what they need to do. I'll tell you, it is unloving. The description of love as it's practiced in our culture is in many ways the most unloving thing that you can do for another human being if it ever fails to have a corrective side to it or an honest and open side to it. And God's love does that. It doesn't rejoice in iniquity. Additionally, this also means that love doesn't enjoy hearing about the sins and the failures of others. That always breaks the heart of a person who is love-filled. So it says, hey, did you hear about this and this and all and that? Well, when you love that person and you love people in general, and you hear that, and it isn't something that's like a delicious piece of gossip. It breaks your heart, what you're hearing. And that's a mark that God is infusing us with love in our lives, what used to be something that would be a tasty morsel in terms of gospel, gossip, or you know, we Google it to find out the whole story online, or whatever it might be. Now we look at it and it breaks our heart because we're growing in love love rejoices in the truth, verse 6. In other words, when truth prevails, this love rejoices because it knows that there can't be any better outcome for any situation than God's outcome. When God wins, everybody wins in every situation. When He wins, we all win. And as a result of that, love will never compromise God's Word. And so... Any so-called expression of love that's at the expense of God's truth in His Word or at the expense of His holiness isn't love at all. Again, love is not simply an emotion that we feel. It is something that has some backbone. It has some convictions. It does what's right for the other person. It bears all things, verse 7, and that And this love bears all things because the source of this love, this is agape love, the source of this love is God himself. He will supply this love to us, and it will not fail in any situation we're in because his supply of love is greater than any demand we will ever put on it in this life. And so love steadfastly endures, It never gives up because God supplies it to us. It believes all things, verse 7. This doesn't mean that uh, walking in love means that I'm gullible or that that it believes a lie when it's spoken uh, to it, but that love is eager to believe the best about a person in a situation. Again, it gives people the benefit of the doubt. Love never loses faith. It believes well of others unless it's forced to think otherwise. And so it never stops trusting in all people simply because it's been burned by some people. Verse 7, again, love hopes all things. In other words, it's not negative. It's not cynical. It is instead very optimistic and very hopeful. And then finally he tells us in verse 7 that it endures... All things. In other words, this love can outlast anything. Why? Again, for the simple reason that it is the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives, and He has an endless supply of this love that He will give to us for every circumstance and relationship in our life, and nothing we will face in this life can in any way extinguish or ex- exceed. The supply of His love uh, for us in that situation to express in that situation, and then finally we come to the enduring permanence of love, verses eight through thirteen, and He begins all of it by just speaking it so tersely and beautifully in verse eight: "Love never fails; it never fails." He tells us. Again in verse 8, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, one day they're going to fail. And they're going to pass away. Prophecy is going to fail. The spiritual gift of prophecy, it will go away one day. We won't need it one day. Tongues, he says, they're going to cease. The spiritual gift of tongues is going to cease one day. Knowledge, the uh, the gift of the word of knowledge is going to vanish away. And he says in verse 9, what we know, spiritually speaking, is partial. Even the revelation that we have through prophecy is partial. So it is what we know spiritually is complete in the sense that we know all that we need to know, this side of heaven. But... We are far from knowing everything about the kingdom of God or the things of the Lord or the Lord Himself or spiritual things. But He tells us in verse 10 that one day we'll go from partial knowledge, partial revelation uh, that comes through prophecy and other gifts to full revelation concerning spiritual things. And when will this partial revelation give way to full revelation? He tells us at the end of verse 10 when that which is perfect is come. And some people believe that this reference to that which is perfect is come, it refers to the canonization of the New Testament or the, the completion of the New Testament. And now that we have the completed New Testament, there's no longer a need for these spiritual gifts. And that breaks down on a lot of levels in my mind. And we may talk a little bit more about that next week from a different vantage point. But most commentators believe, and I certainly agree with them, that this refers to a day when we will see Jesus face to face. And why will these gifts cease at the full face-to-face revelation of Jesus? Because our relationship will go from the one that we have now to where our relationship will be face to face with him. He will not need to communicate to us through prophecy or word of wisdom or word of knowledge. He will, pro- he will speak to us. Directly, I will not need the gift of tongues to be edified or to be built up spiritually. I won't know anything but being edified and built up spiritually in the context of heaven and his presence. In that day when we are with him in the glory of heaven, we won't need these spiritual gifts at that time. Uh, he tells us in verse 11, and Paul says, when I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. And here's this whole progression though, where he's talking about seeing when that, when that which is perfect is come and seeing through a glass darkly, but then face to face as he speaks about in the next verse. It's frustrating for me, and I don't mean to offend anybody, but it is frustrating for me The number of Christians that I have talked with through the years since I've known the Lord, since 1980, who uh, really don't want to be bothered with spiritual gifts. They don't want to be bothered with the Holy Spirit in a very large degree. They don't want to be um, uh, anything to do with that or with certain aspects of spiritual gifts or calling. And they will look at it and say uh, to themselves, well... I, I don't, all of those things are just childish things in comparison to what we have uh, in the Word of God. And so they look at spiritual gifts, Word of wisdom, Word of knowledge, prophecy, gift of tongues, all of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and they uh, declare that these things are childish. Paul is not declaring these things to be childish. He's merely saying that at this, When he wrote this, he was in the same place that we were. He's in heaven now. We are not in heaven yet. But he, he's basically saying that on a physical level, a child understands certain things to a certain degree as a child, and then one day when they become an, an adult, they see things uh, far uh, better. They see things far deeper. Their understanding is far greater. And so that's true on a physical realm. And Paul is saying, in essence, that will be our truth, uh, will be true of us spiritually. These gifts of the Holy Spirit are wonderful this side of heaven. But, it, one day when we enter into heaven and we see the Lord, then these things are going to be like a child trying to relate to the world with severe limitations as opposed to an adult relating to the world with far greater knowledge. He would never go back here on a physical sense because this is inferior and in heaven we would never want to go one day when we are in heaven all of the way that we relate to God now will seem vastly inferior to how we will when we're in heaven itself he says in verse 13 faith, hope, and love will abide eternally beyond this life and on into eternity these mountaintops faith, hope, love I mean you could just Speak about those till the day we die and never exhaust the subject. But the greatest, he says, of these three is love. Now let me close with a couple of applications. This passage uh, teaches us, and it's an important lesson, that possessing or exercising spiritual gifts doesn't necessarily make me a spiritual person but that love is the single greatest mark of spirituality in a Christian. The church at Corinth came behind in no spiritual gifts. Paul spoke of it in chapter 1. All of the gifts were operating in that church. Their attitude toward the gifts in terms of being open to the gifts, they were more than open to the gifts. They desired earnestly the best gifts. These people were really, really excited about that side of, of the Christian life. And Paul commends them for all of that. That's absolutely commendable. So then it's shocking when you read later in the epistle that Paul writes to them and he declares them, despite their calling, despite their gifting, despite the operation of the gifts of the Holy Spirit within the church, he declares them to be carnal, to be dominated by the flesh. They were carnal uh, Christians. Now, I want to be very careful that you don't Misunderstand me in a way that I've heard people misunderstand on this issue. I'm not saying that all churches that exercise spiritual gifts and are zealous for spiritual gifts are also carnal. That's another way that people just say, all right, I don't want the aggravation of that. I don't want to deal with spiritual gifts. People have used it in excess. They dishonor the reputation of the Lord. They do crazy things and all. And so they then look and say, that kind of a Christian is just carnal compared to my kind of Christian that's just content with learning what's here in the Bible. You have un- an indescribably deep and spiritual Christian's who are Pentecostal and charismatic, which is what the church at Corinth was. And so it doesn't mean that just because somebody exercises these gifts, desires these gifts, that somehow they are carnal. I'm only saying that the church at Corinth was carnal. When I was a a brand-new Christian, there was a song that was popular written from First Corinthians chapter 13, and it was a song called Charity. I think that Ken Gullickson uh, wrote the song. And he basically took First Corinthians 13 and he um, put it uh, to music. And there was a line in that song that always impacted me the most out of all of the lines. And the line went like this. It, it uh, declared, If I have not charity or love, If love does not flow from me, I am nothing. Jesus, reduce me to love. And that line at that point then becomes a prayer. If I have not charity, if love does not flow from me, I am nothing, encapsulating verses 1 through 3, I am nothing, and then the prayer, Jesus, reduce me to love. And the beautiful thing is, that he does do that and he will do that for the simple reason that it's the only way that we can become like him and live a life that represents him. It is very significant to observe, and every Christian and every human being ought to have a right to hear this once in their Christian life, very significant to observe the fact that in the description of love in verses 4 through 7, when you plug Jesus' name in where the word love is in that passage, it is a perfect match. You notice in verse 4 Jesus suffers long and is kind, match. Jesus does not envy, match. Jesus does not parade himself, match. Jesus is not puffed up, match. And it's a match all the way through. Why? Because Jesus is the historical living definition of love. It's also interesting to uh, consider uh, plugging our own name into that same definition of love and then to see it reveal to us our degree of spirituality. Just do it with me for a moment in verse 4. Uh, Damien suffers long. okay. Maybe a B minus. And is kind. Ooh, okay. Fell off a cliff there. Damien does not envy. I'm not going to give grades the rest of the way through. Damien does not parade himself. Damien is not puffed up. And we can take our name and put it all the way through. And how good of a match that is or how mismatched my name is in that passage speaks to how spiritual a person I am. Because that's measured on the basis of love. When we plug our names into that passage, it's a... Sometimes people will say... Oh, I love 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And I look at them. Have you read 1 Corinthians chapter 13? (laughs) It's not just for making posters and putting them up in our room. That's the most convicting passage in the whole Bible when we understand it for what it is. And we fall into this self-deception that the church of Corinth did the pagan culture around them, the pagan culture that surround us. And we convince ourselves and we deceive ourselves that we are spiritual on the basis of what we know about the Bible, what we're able to articulate from the Bible that we are spiritual on the basis of God's calling or He's gifting in my life, that we're spiritual on the basis of the service that we're called to and how sacrificially we fulfill that. And the fact of the matter is, is a person can do all of those things and be a very spiritually immature person. It is love that is the great test for our spiritual maturity. And every single one of us as Christians should always be growing in this area of our life. Where from month to month and year to year we would look back and say... You know, I don't love the way that I want to. My name plugged in still convicts me every time I read it in half a dozen places here. But I know that I'm growing in this characteristic in my life. And there should always be growth in that way. And it's very important that we never settle into an unloving Christian life, to be an ugly, self-centered abusive kind of person and then just because God is using us or because God has given us gifts or because we know how to work hard, we convince ourselves that we're spiritual when we're not. The fact that we have gifts from God and a calling from God and we have the grace to sacrificially serve him, that is not a witness to our spiritual maturity. That is a witness to his grace. Spiritual maturity is something entirely different. And that is gauged by the degree to which this love comes out of our life. And it's a terrible, terrible self-deception that we can fall into. And it's wonderful every once in a while to take this passage and especially the definition of love, and to plug our name in there. And it immediately tells us how we're doing spiritually, what our spiritual maturity is. And sometimes I'll plug my name in, and I'm doing pretty good in certain areas, in a couple of areas that are like, okay, wow, that, that's got my attention right now on that. And then a month later or something, you plug your name in, and all of them will reverse. It'll be something else, something different. It's a very living passage. But as I put my name in there and I look at what love is and my life goes up against that beautiful test and I see where I'm failing, then I can look to the Lord and say, Lord, boy, I'm falling short in that area, way short of representing you in that area. And I just ask that you would make me a loving person and do whatever is necessary for that area of your love to be developed In my life, and He will always be faithful to do that. The passage is convicting, and it's intended to pierce, and it's intended to pierce and to destroy again that idea that I am spiritual on the basis of anything other than this definition of love and Christ likeness characterizing my life. And this love is a byproduct. It is the greatest mark of maturity in our lives, spiritually speaking, and it is a byproduct of a healthy, yielded relationship to the Holy Spirit. Wonderful thing. Wonderful to open our eyes up. It's a funny thing. I think we all have our journeys in this area related to love. And... Um, I'm just thankful, and I know that I speak for most of us in this room. I am so thankful for how he has forced me to grow in this area in my life and how faithful he has been. I'm not anywhere near where I need to be, so I'm not going to do like a seminar on love or something and charge everyone $250. There would be me and nobody else in the room. But it's one of the greatest feelings in the world to look back and say, Lord, how you have grown me in love. And thank you so much for it. And keep it up, Lord, and to know that he will. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, we thank you for how far you have brought us in this thing called love. How critical we could be, how judgmental we could be, how harsh we could be, how verbally abusive we could be. The use of silent treatment and shunning, Lord, of people in order to hurt. And year by year, you have caused these things to drop off in a great measure, Lord, from our lives. And you've walked us into the life of our Savior, the life of Christ, into this wonderful world of love. And we thank you for it. And we thank you, Lord, for how we see the world as a result and how we see people and the blessing that the life is and what happens in our relationship with you as a result. And so we ask as a simple little church in Modesto, California, thank you for the love that marks this church and our individual lives. And we ask that you continue to reduce us, Lord, to love. Thank you that you have made that the greatest mark of spirituality. Help us never to be deceived by it, Lord, in religious environments, including religious Christian environments. We're prone to it. We thank you for the strength of this passage to push back that self-deception. We need it, and you know it. And we thank you that this passage provides it. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.